0: following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There is one primary villain in the movie Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There is one character, super scary. It is the abominable snow monster, sometimes known as the Bumble. And early on in the movie, Rudolph is warned about this snow monster and that if he's not careful, the snow monster will get him. And so they're kind of fleeing this, the bumble, the abominable snow monster. And um, the problem is as Rudolph is roaming through the North Pole with uh, Hermie, the elf, and Yukon Cornelius, the abominable snow monster is chasing him because he's drawn to Rudolph's glowing nose. And so they elude um, the Bumble until this one kind of climactic conflict in the movie where the Bumble gets a hold of Rudolph and a few other reindeer. He has them in his cave, and uh, you'll see that uh, Yukon, Cornelius, and Hermes, the elf, save the day. Okay, and I want to show you this scene, but I'm going to warn you. I mean, it is, it's super scary, okay, so... I don't know if you can handle this, Brace. You weren't expecting this at church, okay, but it's a little intense, but I think you can handle it. All right, check out this scene.
1: Why doesn't he get it over with? Mom! <laughs> uh, uh, Clarice! Are you sure we can get him to come out here? Never knew the bumble snow monster yet who turned down a pork dinner for deer meat. Do your stuff. I, I. Put some heart in it. That bumble's hungry. I, I, I In heaven. <laughs> <Snow> and <ice. laughs> All right, Dennis. You take it from here. It's Yukon Cornelius. All right.
0: That was a close one. Um, sorry, I know that was a little violent, all right, but um, we survived it together. Okay, so the Bumble is, I mean, he is the ultimate bad guy. He's got these big, scary teeth, okay, and he's trying to eat these reindeer, and, you know, it, he is the one that's chasing them around. Like, if there, there's these misfits, but there is one true, like, villain in this movie, and it's the Bumble. Now, the interesting thing and what I love about this movie is even though these misfits have been outcast, Um, It's this message of Christmas, they get brought back in and kind of accepted, they're they're brought back in, but even in the end, the bumble of all people gets redeemed. Now more on that in a little bit, but there's something in this passage that we've been studying that's trying to communicate a similar thing. It's Luke chapter 2 and verse 22, we're looking at the story of Simeon, and it's this part of the Christmas story that's often forgotten, it's almost like a misfit part of the Christmas story. And it takes place with Mary and Joseph and their baby Jesus. And they're in the temple and they meet this guy named Simeon. And in this story, we find out how the last that you would ever expect gets welcomed in around this Christmas moment. I want you to look with me in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Here's what it says. And when the time came... in the life of Mary and Joseph and their baby. Now let me just get you caught up. If you're just now joining us in this series, let's just go back through those verses and just set the context for what's happening. Baby Jesus at this point is probably five or six weeks old. Mary and Joseph are bringing him into the temple. They're being obedient to laws that go all the way back to the Passover thousands of years earlier when the Israel comes out of Egypt. It goes all the way back to that where they are coming to the temple to make sacrifices for the purification for Mary and for the purification for this baby boy, Jesus. Now you imagine them, they're walking into the temple. Okay, now remember, they're they're coming, they, they might have just been staying in the stable. They might still be in the stable for all we know, but they have just given birth to this child in the stable. They're probably still reeling from the fact that there were these shepherds the night that Jesus was born that came running into their stable, looking at this baby, falling down, worshiping him, rejoicing. And when they're trying to figure out what's going on, they tell them that angels lit up the sky declaring that God had sent the Messiah, the Son of David, to them. I mean, they're still reeling from all of this. They're coming in. We learn from this passage that Mary and Joseph are a poor couple. They've got these two turtle doves, which is a provision in the law for those who couldn't afford a lamb. And they're walking in with their baby, through the hustle and bustle of the temple, there to offer sacrifice on his behalf. But then we learn about this other guy who comes to the temple that day. It's a guy named Simeon. And I love that it doesn't really tell us much about Simeon because kind of the point is, he's just a guy. He's just a guy. but He's a guy who really loves God. He says he's righteous and devout. He loves God. And something unique about this guy is that God had decided to let him in on a secret. And we don't know how God reveals this to him. Maybe it was just a hunch. Maybe it was just something he was praying for. Maybe it was just the sense he got. Maybe it was a dream. Who knows? But God lets him in on this this idea. God says, you will not die until you have looked on the Messiah, who is the consolation of all things. He's waiting for it. Israel who has all of these promises they've been that have been on this people group for centuries and they're waiting god when are these promises going to come true and he's waiting for that urgently cuz he loves god and he believes his promises and he gets this nudge from god you will not die until you your eyes see the messiah the lord's christ the word christ means messiah and so do you see like the drama of this moment We talked about this last week. I I can't wait one day in heaven to see this replayed in high definition. I mean, this is incredible. Mary and Joseph coming in with their little baby, poor, maybe feeling out of place, jostled around in the hustle and bustle of the temple, but they're holding the Lamb of God in their arms. And this guy who has just spent his entire life just waiting and wondering if that could really be true, that he would set his eyes on the Messiah. And they're both at the temple that day. Watch what happens. Look at this in verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I mean it is just something special to see like a moment in someone's life that basically like satisfies everything their life has been building towards it seems like he's like late in his life, this guy Simeon, this is like late in his life because he basically says, God, everything my life has been building towards has now been satisfied. Like I I have been waiting for this moment, now I have this moment, and I can die in peace because this moment of his life has been satisfied. And what is his entire life been pointing towards? Jesus. He takes Jesus into his arms and praises God saying, I can depart in peace. But it's not just the fulfillment of his life, is it? Because remember, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for all of the promises of Israel, for all that Israel's been waiting for to be satisfied. And if you look at this, I mean, look back at at what's happening here. This is like... All of the pieces of the story of Israel are like colliding in this moment. Did you notice? I mean, look at it. Did you see that the word law appears four times just in this little section? You've got this couple that are they're coming to fulfill the law. They're, they're trying to follow the law. It talks about the law of Moses, references Moses. It talks about the law of the Lord. They're there to be obedient to the law. They're there and actually these laws point back to this significant moment, the most critical moment in Israel's history, the Passover all the way back to the Passover. They're there in the temple, the, the law they're following is making a sacrifice. They're there in the temple in Jerusalem. It mentions Jerusalem multiple times, waiting for the Messiah. I mean, it's like all pieces. This is this moment just screams Israel. Okay, and I'm, I was trying to get my brain around this this week and I was saying, okay, what would this look like in like a modern context? Like what would like the ultimate moment of like all things Miami like coming together in one moment, okay? And I was just, just hang with me here. I was trying to get this in my brain. How would I create, like what would be my ultimate moment of all things Miami? And and this is kind of what I was envisioning, okay? I imagine myself sitting on the patio of the Rusty Pelican and I'm overlooking the skyline of Miami, sharing a colada with Dwayne Wade, naturally. (laughs) And we're listening to someone doing karaoke. On the other side of the patio is Mr. 305 Pitbull. And he's singing karaoke style, turn the beat around, okay? When zooming by on a speedboat goes Tony Montana, being chased by Don Johnson, okay? <laughs> and if you could add to that that our server is Dan Marino, okay? <laughs> that is like in my mind, like uh, that's like the collision of all things Miami happened, okay? That, that's in my mind. And the only thing I was like, okay, I, I think that's pretty good, but I thought like one other possible scenario might outdo that. Okay, imagine, okay, the Miami Dolphins are playing the New England Patriots, okay? And we're down by, by five with seven seconds left on our own 30-yard line. I mean, this would be amazing, okay? Ryan Tannehill throws the ball. It's lateraled twice. We run into the end zone with zero time on the clock, and Gronkowski does a face plant into the ground, and we win the game. That would be... I mean, hypothetically, that would be like a great Miami moment. Okay, so I was trying to think, like, this is like this moment of, like, all things Israel, like, intersecting in this one moment. I mean, the temple and the Messiah and the law and the sacrifice. And it's in the city of David. It's Jerusalem and the Passover and and all these things happening all at once and he takes up Jesus into his arms. And it's like all everything like finds its rest. All things Israel find its rest in this child. I mean they're standing in the temple but he's holding the one who is the true temple. What do you mean? Like the temple holds and houses the presence of God, but this child is God in the flesh. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in this baby. Okay, they're, they're, they're there fulfilling the law, but they're holding the one who will ultimately perfectly fulfill the law with his life for all of Israel on their behalf. They're there to um, make a sacrifice, and they're holding in their arms the one who will be the one-time ultimate sacrifice, satisfying God's wrath for all time. They're there with a law that points back to Passover and they're holding the one who is the true Passover lamb. He's not pointing back to Passover. Passover is pointing forward to him. Because by his blood he he will save them from the slavery of sin and death itself will pass over them. And they're holding this one who is the fulfillment of all things Israel. And then Simeon says this. You got to see what he says. It's the most unexpected thing. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the, who does it say? Gentiles. To the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I mean, do you see? This is like such an unexpected moment. I mean, imagine this, like the Pharisees at this time period, in their attempts to interpret and follow the law, their practice was that because of the dietary laws that they followed, the things that they they wouldn't eat because those things would make them unclean according to the law. So because of their interpretation, I'm just talking, this is what the cultural thing is of that day. They wouldn't even sit down at a table to eat with a Gentile. Because I've got to eat certain things, if they're a Pharisee, I've got to eat certain things to stay clean. If I eat that, I'm unclean. You're eating that, which makes you unclean. And by sitting at this table, you're making me unclean. And so they wouldn't even sit at the same table with the Gentile. And yet, at this moment, standing in the temple where there's sections the Gentiles couldn't even enter into. In this moment, all things Israel, we learn that the culmination, the Messiah of of Israel making everything right, the consolation of all things they have been waiting for, will be a light to all the nations and all the Gentiles. I mean, that is like the most unexpected right-hand turn in this moment. So the thing, we're, we're talking about the, the, this movie, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and I, I love how it, it, these misfits get redeemed and they get brought in. And there's this scene at the end, and Rudolph returns, and, and everyone realizes that they should not have, have been so mean to Rudolph, and, and everything's kind of made right, and, and everything's happy. And there's this one twist at the end, because right when they're celebrating everything, there's a knock at the door, and the most unexpected thing happens. Check out what happens.
1: Open up! Isn't a fit night out for man or beast? Here's the man. And here's the beast. Now calm down. Calm down. I reformed this Bumble. He wants a job. Looky what he can do. And he doesn't even need a stepladder.
0: Of all things, I love kind of that twist at the end. I mean, you kind of expect that the misfits are going to find redemption, but it's even the bumble. Like even, like Christmas brings even the bumble, even the abominable snow monster in, and he gets redeemed and welcomed in. Do you see what's happening at this moment in the story? He's saying Jesus, Jesus brings in even the Gentile. This, the the Jewish Messiah, the consolation of Israel, brings in even the one that is just so unlikely brings them to the table. Like here's this is just echoing something we see over and over in Jesus' ministry. Here's this thing about Jesus: Jesus does what no other person, no other ideology, no other religion, no other religious figure could possibly ever do he brings people to the table that are so far away from each other they would not otherwise ever be at the table together like let me just give you an idea because jesus ministry was was crazy he would people who were whether they were wealthy or poor the wealthiest of the wealthy the poorest of the poor were drawn to jesus you got a guy like joseph of arimathea says he was a wealthy man he's the one that goes to Pilate and asks for jesus body so that Jesus' body can be buried before he rises again on the third day. On the flip side, you've got blind Bartimaeus, completely impoverished, a beggar, who gets healed by Jesus and asks if he can follow Jesus. Jesus takes the like, economic separation and he pulls these people together. How about um, ethnically, racially? You've got on one hand, you've got a guy like Paul he describes himself like a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's got, he's got the right lineage. He's got the right background. He's got all, he, he follows the laws. He's got all the right stuff. I mean, he is the guy. And yet he has this powerful encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he bends his knee and realizes that his allegiance is to Jesus. And on the flip side, Jesus shows up in this Gentile city one day, and there's a guy possessed with a legion of demons living among the tombs, who's just tormenting the cities around, the farthest outcast, he's a Gentile, and he comes before Jesus and throws himself before Jesus, begging for mercy. Jesus has a powerful encounter with him, and he gives his life to Jesus and goes and shares with everyone he knows. See, Jesus has a way of pulling, whether it's economically divided, racially divided, he brings them to the table together. How about politically divided? Do you know who's sitting at his table? You know who his, two of his disciples were? Let me remind you one of them is a guy named Matthew, who's a tax collector, and the other one's a guy named Simon the Zealot. Politically, you could not get farther apart than these two. Okay, let me just kind of describe what, what this looks like. Matthew, the tax collector, is so far to the left. He's so far to the le- left that he would have made most liberals uncomfortable. What he has done is he's so progressive in his thinking that he's rejected patriotism. He's so progressive that he's become an agent of Rome, taxing his own people and then cheating them to get a little more for himself. That's Matthew the tax collector. How about Simon the zealot? He's so far to the right that he would have made other conservatives of his day a little nervous. Because what the Zealots would do, they so rejected Rome, they were so pro-Israel, that they were willing to violently overthrow and do violence towards Romans that they came across. And some of them would even do violence towards their own countrymen, own Israelite people who were sympathetic with Rome. Okay, now I want you to imagine this ultra, ultra far left, Ultra, ultra far right. I mean, these guys should not meet alone in an alley, okay? And you know what Jesus did? He picked them. Matthew, I want you on my team. Simon, I want you to be one of my followers. And he brings them to the table. Can you imagine how that went the first time? Peter's probably like, I'm going to sit between you two, okay? And what happened to these two people? They worked together, lived together, shared the gospel together, were amazed at Jesus together, survived turbulent seas on the Sea of Galilee only to watch Jesus calm it together and then went to the utter ends of the earth sharing the gospel of Jesus together. Like, Jesus does something no one else has ever even seen, okay? He brings people of different economic backgrounds and people of different ethnic backgrounds and people of different political backgrounds. He brings people from different spiritual backgrounds. How about, do you you ever notice John chapter 3 is right next to John chapter 4 for a reason? John 3, the most famous thing, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So where he talks about you have to be born again. And he said that from someone who was flawless spiritually, like the religious of the religious. His name was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and he was just so drawn to Jesus that he came to Jesus at nighttime so no one could see him. Because he wasn't sure that, that it, would, it would match with his religious status. And he sits down to Jesus, having done everything religious you can do. And Jesus says, yeah, you pretty much have to be born again. Because you need the Messiah. You need the Son of God, Jesus. He says that to the ultra-religious. And then the next chapter, do you know who he meets? He's going through Samaria. Most pious Jews would not even go through Samaria. They are the religious backwards. And he's at there's a woman at the well all by herself which cues us to what we should already know and she later reveals that she is ostracized even from her community because of her promiscuous, loose living. And he sits and he talks with her and she's shocked that he would talk with her. And he says, you know what you need? The living water. You need the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus. Because what the religious needs is Jesus and what the rebellious needs is Is Jesus. He he has a way of bringing whether economic differences, racial differences, political differences, spiritual differences. He brings them all to the table. How about cultural differences? How about like the ultimate insiders and the ultimate outsiders? There's this one, it, it must have been like one hour in which Jesus enters into this town called Capernaum right near Bethsaida. And there's a guy, it says he's the ruler of the synagogue, which means he is like the insider of insiders. He is the man of that town. And he comes to Jesus desperate. He says, I desperate, my my child is sick and dying. Please, would you heal my child? And Jesus is traveling with this one. Of course, he's not going to say no to Jairus, who's the, the, uh, the ruler of the synagogue. And while he's traveling and the whole entourage, they're all crushed in around Jesus seeing what happens to this man and his great household. And meanwhile, there's this woman who's been for 12 years ostracized from her community. She can't touch anyone because she's diseased and she'll make them unclean. And she risks it anyway and she pushes through between them hoping they don't see her and she just reaches out her hand to touch the hem of his garment because she knows Jesus, she's tried everything else and Jesus is her only hope and she touches him And she's instantaneously healed. And Jesus stops the whole crowd and says, I want you to come in front of everyone because I want them to see you, daughter, have been healed because of your great faith. Does that encourage any of you who feel like an outsider today? He heals, he comes and he heals the insider's household and the outsider's household. Do you see that there's something that Jesus does That no other person, religion, religious leader, doctrine, ideology could possibly do. He brings all of them together. Why? What is it about Jesus? You know, our our, um, society, our culture, we are so squeamish when it comes to taking an ideology and radicalizing it. We're, we're very like, suspicious, threatened, nervous, paranoid of making anything extreme. Why? Well, if you, if you radicalize religion, you get jihadist. If you radicalize atheism and science, you have what happened, the scientific experimentation that happened under Hitler's regime. So we're so afraid of radicalizing anything, and the closest we'll get to making something extreme is to say, well, what if we radicalize um, tolerance? Like, what if what we feel radical about is just, just this widespread acceptance of everyone can believe whatever they want? The problem with that is the deeper you push into that, then the one person you won't be tolerant for is the intolerant, and in the end, you'll reject the intolerant, and you won't welcome them to the table. But that's not what Jesus does. Because when what you see with these radicalized followers of Jesus is as they're following and pushing into and learning more about and, and exploring more what happened, and they realize that the person of Jesus was God in the flesh that came to earth to die for humanity, to offer himself for, for humanity, and rose again from the dead, they realize this is the perfect expression of love. You say, well, what about, what about the, the Christian expression that I've seen before? I, I mean, I've seen exp- Christianity radicalized and it turns into violence. Well, I don't know what they were claiming to be, but they certainly do not understand what Jesus was all about. Because Jesus is the purest expression of love. And when we push into that, well, this is what it says in, in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let me tell you how this works. When you encounter Jesus, the first thing that happens, the more we push into Jesus, the more it inspires humility. It humbles us. Because anything before I was patting myself on the back about, I realize I just stand before God in desperate need of a Savior. I just, I I have nothing to brag about. I have nothing to boast in. I have nothing to rest in. I just simply need, I have nothing to pat myself on the back. I simply need a Savior. And when I realize that Jesus is Almighty God that came to be rejected and ridiculed and stripped and beaten and tortured for me, the more I push into that, the more I am humbled and it inspires humility in my life that god would expend the greatest treasure of the universe he would spend it to save me that humbles me and that humility then inspires the next thing that humility inspires then a deep hospitality what do you what do i mean by that Once I realize where I stand, I am nothing before God except for Jesus. Then I open up in hospitality, I open up and welcome people into my life that I otherwise would have said, I'm not letting you in. I now welcome them in because I realize that we all stand the same before God. We all just need Jesus. Sinners in need of grace. And so now I have a hospitality, a hospitable posturing in my life where I welcome people into my friend group, welcome them into my small group, welcome them into my home, welcome them among my family, welcome them around, and I have this welcoming spirit of people that otherwise I would have never imagined I'd sit at the table with. And because of that, it also inspires not just humility and hospitality, this higher allegiance. Because I may have my economic perspective My ethnic background, my political views, my my cultural stance, my spiritual background, but I realize I have now something so much higher than that that is my first allegiance. I may still love my country, but I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven. I may have certain political perspectives, but the title you, you put on me first is Christian. And I take all of those perspectives and I just hold them before Jesus and surrender. I take all of whatever my economic perspectives and background and culture and spiritual, and I say all of it is nothing compared to you, Jesus. I now have a higher allegiance because ultimately the fourth thing that brings is I recognize there is only one hope in this world. There's only one hope. It's Jesus. Simeon held the hope of the world in his arms. There's only one hope. There's only one hope for my life. There's only one hope for my, my family. There's only one hope for our city. There's only one hope for our country. There's only one hope for this world. And his name is Jesus and he came at Christmas time. Can I challenge you today to take inventory of your life? Are you building your hope on something other than Jesus? What's your thing that you're thinking is going to save your life? What are you thinking is going to be the culmination of your life? It's Jesus. What do you think that is going to be the thing that saves our country? It's Jesus. What is the thing you think it's going to save your family? It's Jesus, your hope is only in Jesus. Can you take inventory of your life and anchor your hope only in Him? Because the more we push into that, here's what we'll see as a church, here's what we'll see as a community, here's what we'll see one day in heaven. Let me read this to you. It's in Revelation. This is what it looks like in the end. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Christian, do you long for that day one day? Anyone longing for that day that we will stand around the throne and we will be there with people from every tongue and tribe and nation and we will stand before Jesus and we will throw everything down before him and declare that he is the Lamb of God who washed us clean. Jesus can do something that no one else can do. Something this world has never seen before or since. He's the hope for this world. And he's the hope for your life today. There are two things that might keep someone from putting their hope in Jesus. There are two things that someone who's thinking about Jesus, exploring Jesus, asking questions about Christianity, there are two things that keep them from taking that step and surrendering their life to Jesus and putting their faith in Jesus. The first one is that there are those who would say, I I would follow Jesus, but I'm too bad. Like I'm too far gone. You don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know what I'm remembering when I'm those moments I'm just driving down the road all by myself. And that tape goes back through my mind of the things that I've done. And I feel it like shame, like chains around my neck weighing me down. I'm too far gone. So there's some that say, I, I, I'm, I'm too bad. I'm too far from God. God could never love me. But here's what you're saying by saying that you're, you're saying that your sin is greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. The author of life allowed himself to be crucified and killed. And he thoroughly paid for all of your sin, past, present, and future. He washed you clean as far as the east is from the west. There's no one too bad you can come to Jesus today. But there are those on the other side that say, and they don't realize they're saying this, but they're really saying, I'm too good. See, there's some that are just saying, you know, yeah, I get Jesus, but I mean, I like Jesus, I respect Jesus, but I'm just not sure I need Jesus. Like, I have a little dose of Jesus, I I don't mind having some spirituality in my life or Or, you know, having a little Christianity in my life, but I'm just not sure I need Jesus. Like, I think there's some people that, man, there's some brokenness. I mean, Jesus is like their crutch that they need to get through the day. And really what you're saying is that my life's pretty good. I got, you know, my family's good. My friendships are good. I've got my hobbies. uh, Finances are good. Career's good. I'm good. But see, what you're maybe not realizing is how, where all of us stand before God. Every single one of us, the Bible says, have fallen short of the glory of God by our sin. We all have it. Which means that every single one of us, as we stand without Jesus, are enemies of God. Do you realize you're the bumble? I'm the bumble. We stand as enemies of God. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we're facing an eternity away from God. Because salvation is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. And so some of you today are needing to realize, I need Jesus. I cannot build my life on a foundation of my good deeds or my beliefs or, or, or the things that I'm doing. I need to stand on a firm foundation on my Savior, Jesus Christ. So wherever you're at, put your faith in Jesus today. Find your hope because he is the single only hope that this world has and he's the hope for your soul. If that's you and you want to put your faith in Jesus today, then I want to just lead you in a prayer. Can we just take a quiet moment before God? Would you bow your heads in prayer? If you're watching online, would you just take a moment and just bow your heads where you're at and just... Let's just take a moment before God, and here's what I want to do. If that's you, you say, look, I'm wanting to, I, I used to think I was too far from God, but I believe what Jesus did. I believe he died and rose again, and so, yes, I want to take that step and believe that I could be forgiven and become a child of God. Take that step of faith. Some of you might be saying, look, I've been thinking it's all about being religious and spiritual, but I'm realizing it's not about that. It's about the person of Jesus And what he did to pay for my sins. And today I'm going to humble myself. Realize my brokenness. And give my life to Jesus. If that's you, I want to lead you in this prayer. Just silently make these words your words right there. Whether you're sitting here, whether you're watching online, just make these words your words. Just say this in your heart. Jesus, thank you for saving me. I need you to save me. I admit there's sin in my life. And for me to make it to heaven, I need a savior. Thank you for dying for me. I believe you rose again from the dead